Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. This episode was made possible by our top tier patrons, Philip Dixon and Anushka Maiden. If you want to support us from as little as one pound a month and get cool stuff like bonus episodes, voting on future topics and shout outs, you can go over to Demystified by Ashley Styles on Patreon and you'll find us there. Now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. 1462, Wallachia, in what is today Romania. The rhythmic beating of war drums and hooves rolls on like a low rumble of thunder. The army is on the march, on a mission of righteous retribution. The Sultan of the Ottoman Empire, Mehmed II, is on the warpath. A ruler in the area has disobeyed him and refused to submit to Ottoman rule. In these days, the Balkans is in their sphere of influence, and this transgression can't go unpunished. Mehmed has some history with this disobedient ruler. The ruler's brother marches in his army. Both were raised at the Ottoman court, but whilst one brother liked it, the other detested the trappings of Ottoman culture. That young man returned to his homeland to take up the seat of his father and his elder brother before him, both of whom supposedly had been murdered by disloyal boyars and the lords under them. When the young man returned, he had been ruthless. The boyars who had been found guilty, or insufficient in their loyalty, were killed to a man in the most brutal of fashion. As the Ottoman host passes through the lands of twilight, the trees seem to get ever closer and closer, drawing into a dense forest. There's a reason the old Romans named this place the land beyond the trees. But it all makes for an eerie effect. It feels that out in these high mountains, a thousand pairs of eyes could be watching and waiting. The sun sets, but the army marches onwards. Theirs is the stronger host, and they need to press the advantage against this traitor. The only light is that of the moon, and the burning torches in the hands of the soldiers. A cry from the vanguard. The column stops. The Sultan rides to the front to assess what the problem is and is greeted with a sight he'll never forget. Ahead of him is a sea of bodies. Tens of thousands of people, all dead or dying. Each has had a large wooden stake rammed through them lengthways to prolong their suffering and make a public example. Such barbarism, such cruelty. What kind of man would do this to his own people? What sort of inhumane monster would be so base, so low in character, to watch with glee as mothers had their children nailed to them, old and young alike murdered in the most foul manner? But the trick worked. Or maybe it was the summer heat, long campaigning, skirmishes with the Wallachians, or other causes, but for whatever reason, Mehmed ended up withdrawing from Wallachia. And that wayward local ruler would go down in history by several epithets. He's actually known in some circles as a Romanian hero for his work fighting the Ottomans. You may know him by his usual title, Vlad the Impaler. 
but he has another name, a patronym pertaining to his father Dracul, the dragon. Vlad, son of Dracul. Dracula. A castle in the Carpathian Mountains in the late 1800s. The real estate agent considers his options. As fell winds howl outside his window, rain lashing down and lightning streaking the sky, he hears the sound, the siren's call of the woman at his door. But he can't open the door. For one, he's spoken for. A beautiful fiancée awaits him. For another, if he does, the woman will kill him and drink his blood. Since accepting this job, to help an elderly nobleman try and purchase some property in England, he's had nothing but strange occurrence after strange occurrence. The locals give him charms and try to warn him. His host, the enigmatic Count, is awake only at the night, and whilst charming and charismatic, he can't abide the presence of mirrors. As Jonathan Harker plans a dramatic escape across the channel back at home, events of their own are unfolding. An escape from a mental asylum, a ghost ship washing up on shore, a love triangle, and a mysterious Dutch physician. If this sounds familiar, that's because it's the plot of one of the most famous stories of all time. Actual history, now 1897, England. An Irishman, one Bram Stoker, is the business manager of the Lyceum Theatre, and a personal assistant to the aristocratic actor Henry Irving, known for his villainous roles. Stoker was inspired to do some writing of his own. You see, several years earlier, he'd been reading up on Transylvanian folklore, the land beyond the forests. In it, he'd encountered a story of a mythical monster, the vampire, the corpse risen from the grave, stalking the night to feast on the blood of the living. This was compounded by several tales of bouts of vampire hysteria from the 18th century in Eastern Europe, instances where bodies were exhumed and staked, nailed down or burnt. When reading about Romania and their mythology of the Strigoi, Stoker came across a rather interesting figure. The man's name was Vlad III Tepes, or Vlad the Impaler, and he was renowned for his supposed cruelty, as the name implies he was famous for impaling his victims. But his other name, Vlad Dracula, had a certain ring to it that Stoker liked. His proximity to the vampire legend was also a boost. Furthermore, Stoker was inspired by earlier works, and his theatrical employer, to make his titular character a rather aristocratic sort. That said, the actual historical Vlad Dracula was never actually associated with the vampire legend, but the book was a stunning success, and as such today we can't hear Dracula without thinking of the suave, dangerous vampire lord. Stoker wasn't the first to come up with the concept. The concept itself isn't even native to Eastern Europe. Why is that? Why is it that all over the world, People fear the shadows of the night and the monsters that lurk within them, wings on the wind and fangs in the dark. Today on Demystified, we go to the land beyond the trees as we delve into the fact, and the fiction, behind the vampire. Today on Demystified, we're looking at vampires. The history, not just the mythology. We'll be starting off with some history of Vlad Dracula, and then moving on to vampires in general. Now, I shall clarify to begin, vampires are not real. I don't believe in any kind of mythical monster. But that being said, there were numerous vampire scares, and it's a myth that goes around the entire world. Almost every single culture has some kind of monster that corresponds to what we'd call a vampire. 
We'll get into that, but to first dispel some of the correlation that doesn't add up, the life and times of Vlad Dracula, Vlad the Impaler. Vlad the Impaler was born sometime between 1428 and 1431 in Valachia, a part of the area known as Transylvania and what is today Romania. I specify that because Transylvania in particular has changed hands numerous times over the course of history. In Vlad's day, the area was in the sphere of influence of the Ottoman Empire. Most of us tend to learn about the Ottomans as their perpetual title of the sick man of Europe, but lest we forget that since their inception back in 1299, the Ottomans were a major player in Eastern Europe. Vlad's father, Vlad Dracul, which hopefully won't get too confusing, did swear fealty to the Ottomans after some unsuccessful attempts at crusades to push them out of what remained of the Byzantine Empire. But his nobleman had other plans. The boyars, the minor lords under him, plotted his assassination. When the Hungarians invaded Wallachia in 1447, they killed him, and his eldest son. Vlad and his younger brother Radu were in the Ottoman Empire at the time. Five years earlier, they'd been taken as hostages to ensure their father's loyalty. Now, though, it was time to make good the Ottoman end of the bargain. Vlad attempted to take Wallachia with an Ottoman force, but that didn't work. But after the Hungarian initial puppet, Vlad's cousin, displeased them, he was deposed and Vlad became the Voivoda of Wallachia. Some terminology now. In the book, the antagonist is Count Dracula. Voivoda is sort of ruler. It can mean various things. Count isn't exactly accurate. Not that Stoker was aiming for accuracy with that. The boyars, who I've mentioned, were minor nobility, so think of Vlad as the lord, ruling with some degree of autonomy, and the boyars as his noblemen. When he returned and was finally able to begin ruling in 1456, he wasted no time avenging his father and brother. Part revenge, part securing of his own position, Vlad was said to have invited all of the boyars to a feast. At the party, as the boyars went to leave, he seized them. Then came the trademark. He impaled 200 boyars. Impaling is a particularly nasty method of execution, keeping things as nice as I can given the circumstance. It involves taking a wooden stake, not quite sharpened to a point, and impaling the victim. Vlad liked to do it halfway, so that over the course of a day the gravity would work its way and the victims would slide downwards, being impaled slowly and very painfully. One German monk then alleged that Vlad would take his bread and dip it in the blood of his victims. But Vlad's stories were prolific. Since movable type was introduced to Europe in 1450 with the Gutenberg printing press, these contemporaneous stories from the 1460s became instant bestsellers across the German-speaking world, as Vlad was fighting the Saxons as well as the Ottoman. Uh, not those Saxons, ones from Saxony in Germany who had settled in Transylvania. As well as impaling, he was also apparently a fan of boiling people alive in massive pots and nailing turbans to the heads of Ottoman messengers. His cruelty was indiscriminate. Man, woman, child, old, young, Valachian, Ottoman. If you looked at him funny, you were going to get tortured to death. Now, these stories all need to be taken with a grain of salt because, as is obvious, Vlad was fighting the Saxons, so the Saxon accounts will, of course, big up his supposed sadism. That being said, there are enough accounts from enough sources that there does seem to be some foundation for his legendarily infamous reputation. Within the Slavic world, and indeed modern-day Romania, his reputation is a little more complicated. The term evil wise is used to describe the ruler who was notoriously cruel, but only to ensure maximum law and order. His use of impalement for basically any crime, from as simple as theft to as grand as treason, is seen in some circles as a necessary evil. But back to the history. 
Vlad's rule is not uncontested, not least by the Ottomans. Unlike his father, and despite his younger brother being a fan, Vlad hates the Ottomans and wants them out. So, Mehmed II, famous for the conquering Constantinople in 1453, moves on to the Balkans to secure the Ottoman hold. Well, that's when we get to the story of the so-called Forest of Corpses. What Vlad had apparently done was in order to intimidate the Ottomans, impale tens of thousands of his own people, displaying their bodies in a massive field of death to try and scare them off. This didn't work quite as well as he'd hoped. While the Ottoman force didn't end up withdrawing, Vlad still had trouble. You see, being an independent ruler requires being able to conduct astute and careful diplomacy, and when you brutally kill every diplomat that comes your way, you see where I'm going. Exaggeration aside, Vlad was caught between King Matthias of Hungary and Mehmed II of the Ottoman Empire, both of whom wanted either his allegiance or his subjugation. Vlad was eventually captured and imprisoned by the Hungarians. After a fashion, they tried to install him again, but the Ottomans didn't like it. He died when he was cut down by the Ottomans in battle in 1476-77, there or thereabouts. That's a majorly simplified version of the story, by the way, without going into the rights of Burges in Wallachia, the elections of the Voivoda, the fact that Vlad ruled and was deposed three times, and the politics of both Hungary and the Ottoman Empire. Suffice it to say, Vlad's bid to make Wallachia an independent nation didn't pan out, but his reputation as a liberator is still how he's mostly remembered in Romania. So how do we get from that, whatever that is, to a vampire? Well, despite the story of him drinking and eating blood, nobody actually made the connection until Bram Stoker. And Stoker didn't make the connection until he was almost done. In the first draft, the character is called Count Vampire, but Stoker thought that was a little too on the nose, and so after doing some more reading on Wallachian history, he thought, hey, this Dracula guy is gnarly as hell, maybe he'd make a good antagonist. As far as we can tell, though, the idea of Vlad being an actual vampire doesn't come until Bram Stoker borrows the name, and then the idea spread. But what of the vampire itself? The connection, despite not being made, was there, wasn't it? Well, when we say vampire, we mean loads of different things, because as I discussed earlier, basically every culture in the world has some kind of vampiric creature. A vampire, in this instance, is a creature that feeds on the life essence of a person, either their blood or a more nebulous force, and in that aspect we have loads of varieties, each with their own unique cultural backgrounds. In Eastern Europe we have the vampire, a term that becomes popularised after the hysteria of the 18th century. Starting in 1721 in East Prussia and spreading all the way down to the Balkans, to Greece, each region had its own local varieties that popped up. And all over that time period, people were digging up bodies they suspected were vampires and doing various things. Putting garlic in the mouth, putting a brick in the mouth, burning the bodies, stamming it with stakes, driving nails into it, turning it upside down. In Romania in particular, we have this Thrigoi. The tales of them were controversial. A different Vavoida of Valachia from the 1600s attempted to control the folklore by passing laws to deal with them, including a recommendation from an orthodox patriarch which stipulated that belief in the Strugoi was heresy. But as much as that was the patriarch's opinion, he did also offer advice on how to deal with them. Holy water was the church-approved solution. The Ashanti of West Africa have the Asanabosam, with iron teeth, and they live in trees. The Bitsileo of Madagascar have a creature called Ramanga, a living vampire. In Louisiana, in the French Caribbean, the Lugaru is a hybrid of a vampire and a werewolf. The Aztec have the Quihuatateo, a skull-faced spirit of a dead child that steals children. In Malaysia, the Penangalan drinks the blood of pregnant women by detaching its own head, similar to the Japanese Nukekubi. 
China has one of the most distinct varieties of them all, with its own history. The Jiangshi, commonly referred to as vampire zombies, hop around, I'm not kidding, and they suck the qi, the life force of their victims, out. The story goes that back to the tradition of transporting corpses upright on bamboo poles created the appearance, when viewed at night, of them hopping. I could do a whole episode on the Jiangshu, and perhaps I might. Their impact on Hong Kong cinema as a storytelling device can't be understated. So we have a globe-spanning myth. Creatures, frequently described as undead or risen corpses in some capacity, travel around at night and drain the life force of the living. If one gets you, you could turn into one. So what gives? Why is this particular myth so popular and so globe-spanning? It even goes as far back, by the way, as Assyria and Babylon the Lilithu stories that would eventually turn into Lilith from Hebrew mythology, and ancient India also had its own vampiric entities. Before we look at the theories, it's apparently mathematically impossible, by the way, for vampires to exist. In 2006, a professor from the University of Central Florida calculated that if the first vampire appeared on the 1st of January 1600 and fed once a month, and each victim turned into a vampire, then within two and a half years, the entire population of the Earth would be vampires. So there's that. But there are some theories for the myth why belief in vampires or vampire-like entities is so common. Well, the first theory concerns pre-industrial attempts to explain some of the strange phenomena surrounding death and the decomposition of the human body. Now, that alone makes perfect sense, but we can take a closer look. So the usual mark of a vampire was if the corpse didn't look as it should when disinterred. Burial is tricky because the same thing doesn't always happen. For instance, bodies fill with gas when they decompose, but this could be misinterpreted as the body being full. This could also cause blood to leak out or be forced at the surface of the skin, giving a lively appearance. This would be all the more shocking if the person was sickly or thin in life. It would look for all the world like they'd just eaten something. Furthermore, due to the shrinking of the skin and the retraction of the gums, skin can appear healthier and teeth can appear newer or sharper than they did before. Grave rubbing is another possible explanation. Corpses looking disturbed, coffin lids, missing nails, or being open, rather than the body getting out, it was robbers getting in. In several very notable cases of supposed vampirism, tuberculosis was ruled as a possible explanation. For instance, in 1892, several members of the Brown family of Rhode Island died of a wasting disease, which today we think was tuberculosis, then called consumption. At the time, people thought it was the influence of the undead. George Brown the father was persuaded to exhume his family, their daughter Mercy Brown's body was found to be remarkably fresh, with the blood still in her. Mercy's heart and liver were burnt, and her ashes were made into a tonic which was given to the sickly Brown, young Edwin, who died anyway. Like, obviously. One of the earliest cases of vampire panic from Eastern Europe was the case of Petar Balgozhevik, who had a similar tone. When his body was staked, after being found to be remarkably well-preserved with blood around the mouth, fresh blood apparently poured out of the wound. Now, tuberculosis causes a breakdown in lung tissue, which caused both an excess of blood at the mouth and in general. The new skin, new teeth thing would be the aforementioned tightening the stage of decomposition. Rabies has also been suggested. Hypersensitivity to light, water, and strong smells like garlic are all symptoms of rabies, as well as a potential desire to bite others. It could also explain the link to bats and wolves, both of which can carry rabies and both of which have, at least in Europe, been associated with vampires. But there are other explanations, not just physical. 
1931, Welsh psychoanalyst Ernest Jones, in his treatise On the Nightmare, suggested that vampires are a symbolic defense mechanism that humans unconsciously use to shield ourselves from loss. This, he postulated, is why in so many vampire stories, the revenant goes after their loved ones or family members first. It's a subconscious desire for that deceased loved one to return from the grave, even as a monster. People's fear of death is also present. They identify with the immortal vampire and potentially wish to become one to avoid their own inevitable death. In cases with spouses particularly, the vampire has also been depicted, historically and contemporaneously, as a seducer. But 1930s psychoanalysis is a little tricky. Obviously Freud got in on this, and between him and Jones, links were made between biting and oral fixations, so take that with a huge pile of salt. We also have the political explanations. It's no surprise that vampires are usually depicted as erudite, posh, or aristocratic. One of the earliest codified depictions as such is the book The Vampire by John Polidori, written in the same contest in which Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein, which depicted its titular vampire as an aristocrat way back in 1819. Voltaire made note of the interesting folkloric connections between vampires and the nobility back in 1764. The general connection is this. The vampire is a nobleman who lives alone in their secluded castle, leaving only to feed in a parasitic manner off of the helpless peasants that live below him. It's no surprise, then, that this interpretation of vampires has persisted throughout most modern depictions of them. Marx even described the concept of capital as, quote, dead labor, which, vampire-like, lives only by sucking living labor, and lives the more, the more labor it sucks, end quote. There are, of course, vampire bats, and you would expect them to be a bigger section, right? Bats, which are established in the vampiric canon, that literally drink blood. How could it not be? Well, they only enter that canon in the 16th century, when they were first discovered in South America. Bats have long been used in Europe to denote darkness because of their nocturnal connection, and were used in vampire folklore, but so were wolves and owls. In English heraldry, for instance, a bat denotes awareness of the power of darkness, whatever that means. There are three species of vampire bat, all of which are endemic to Latin America, that's Central and South America, and they have, to our knowledge, no Old World counterparts. From the 1700s onwards, they were used as part of the vampire myths, but the bats were named for the creature, not the other way around. Dracula, the novel, deepened the connection some. Dracula turns into a bat, or a massive, nightmarish bat creature, several times, and vampire bats are mentioned specifically. So what do we make of the myth of a vampire? Well, it's obviously just a myth, but it speaks to something that is present across human cultures across time and space. That humans are to some extent, obsessed with death. And why wouldn't we be? We're the only creature to our knowledge that has any concept of its own mortality, and it's scary. This leads us to creating massive mythologies to explain everything about it. Where do we come from? Where do we go? Can we come back from the dead? Can we live forever? Myths are by definition in the past, but religions are here with us in the present as well, and they offer similar answers to those questions and continue to shape people's beliefs to this day. For me, the vampire is another aspect of this, an attempt to explain something that doesn't make sense inherently. 
it's hard for the ape in trousers to contemplate their own potential demise looking at the body of the other ape who once wore trousers but doesn't anymore. So we improvise. Oh, he's not really dead. He's a vampire. And we treat that like a bad thing because they're not supposed to come back. I think you can extrapolate the psychological element here. They're not supposed to come back, but we kind of want them to because it means maybe we could. We also use it as a method to explain away things that don't make sense, like people being actual sadists with zero regard for the sanctity of human life. I may get in trouble with any Romanian listeners for pointing this out, but it was really easy for people to begin picturing Vlad Dracula, Vlad the Impaler, as an inhuman monster as soon as the link was pointed out. That man killed tens of thousands of his own countrymen and put the land to the torch just to deny it to the Ottomans and make a statement. He relished in one of the most gruesome methods of execution and actively cultured the appearance of a man who took delight in it. Of course, you can argue, as many do, that it was all a ploy, an act of realist politics where he did what he had to do in order to keep his land safe. I wonder how many of those he impaled saw the cunning chess moves he was making and would have congratulated him for his astute politicking. Even if the stories are mostly exaggerated, which a lot of them definitely are, Vlad the Impaler would set the tone, if it hadn't been already, for the idea that a vampire is inherently a nobleman, and that that nobility makes them inherently evil. They suck the life essence off of those less fortunate, and then hide it away from the world, hoarding their wealth and power. Hey, you want another connection to that? Remember those Chinese zombie vampires, the Jiangshu? Go Google one, and look at what they most commonly look like. They're dressed like mandarins from the Qing dynasty. Now, the supposed reason for this is that it takes several hundred years for a Jiangshu to arise, so a modern Jiangshu would be dressed in clothes from two to three hundred years ago. But I don't think it's all too strange that they too are wearing the garments of the upper class, or in this case, specifically the imperial bureaucracy of the Qing dynasty. It's a consistent depiction. Across stories and films and video games, the vampire is an aristocrat, or someone educated or erudite. It's only really in the most novel or modern depictions that vampires are something else, poor and uneducated. Of course, this is not necessarily considering various non-Western depictions of vampires. I mentioned the Chinese vampires that follow the trend. There are a couple of others that buck the trend. So, again, everything in moderation. Bram Stoker's influence was his boss, the actor Sir Henry Irving, famous for playing villainous characters with a dramatic, aristocratic flair to them. But again, whilst John Polidori is credited with the invention of that image, Voltaire mentioned it half a century earlier. So there's no lesson for today, only a promissory note that for future episodes where we explore folklore, I'll continue to make those episodes. It's a massive part of the human experience. We take what we don't know and we ascribe it an explanation. We do that with everything that we don't know, and afterwards we just chalk it up to something. So I'm not just going to not do topics like vampires or zombies, check out episode 18 for that, or a plethora of other monsters and myths just because they're not real. Of course they're not real. I don't really need to discuss, are vampires real? I discussed the mathematical impossibility of vampires, but come on, you don't need me to tell you that. But there are very real elements inside those stories that can tell us so much about the way that our minds work, and these stories have their own impact on the world at large. Those vampire scares of the 1700s didn't come from nowhere, they were very real, and people lashed out in a strange way at something they didn't understand. I will of course also always try and offer up a plate of the real history too, this is after all a podcast where we discuss the history behind the mystery. 
At the same time, though, we have to delve deep into the mystery to find the nugget of history and truth buried deep within it. With all that said and done, though, we close the book, for now at least, on Vlad Dracula and the Legend of the Vampire. This episode of Demystified was written, recorded, and produced by me, Ashley Styles, with hosting by Wizard Studios. Music from ProductionCrate.com. Go to ProductionCrate.com for all of your royalty-free music needs. Follow us on Twitter at Demystified underscore pod and support us from as little as £1 a month on Patreon at Demystified by Ashley Styles. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.